new community. Good morning. How are we all today? Pretty good? Uh, well, welcome. Uh, as Tara already mentioned, this is our second message in our series uh, looking at the book of Revelation. So as I begin here, if you have your Bible, let's go ahead and turn to the book of Revelation. It will be the last book in your Bible. Uh, we're going to go to chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. If you uh, tend to grab that on your phone, you can go ahead and pull those out right now. Uh, I will not assume that you're texting or looking at anything other than the Bible on your phone, so that's totally fine. Uh, so this morning, my goal is to give a somewhat broad overview of the seven letters that we're going to be studying that are contained in chapters 2 and 3, and then look uh, a little bit more detailed at the first letter, which is the letter to the church in Ephesus, like I said, chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. Now, before you really study these letters, you have to be willing, I believe, to admit, to acknowledge, to understand that we are reading somebody else's mail, that the letters were written to seven distinct churches in Asia, all within, in a unique time, a unique place, and a unique context, that the letters themselves address specific issues in the persecuted churches with the common goal of encouraging and strengthening their faith in Christ as Lord. So there is a danger in reading these seven letters as if they were written directly to us. There's a danger if I were to read these things as if they were written directly to me. And in fact, and we've talked about this a number of times, it can be problematic to read any of the Bible in that way, that it was directly written to you, to me, to us in this time. What's required is a thoughtful reading and understanding first into the context in which the letter was written, and then a prayerful exercise in its application for us, both as individuals and as a corporate church body. So let me, uh, let me just share a story that I think might be helpful to illustrate this point a bit better. Uh, in 1957, my grandfather wrote a letter to my grandmother. He was in Austria at the time as a naturalization officer vetting Hungarian refugees hoping to immigrate to the U.S., now, Grandma was back home in Vermont with two teenage sons and my mom, who at the time was about 10 years old. Now, my grandparents have been gone for about a decade now, but two years ago, my mom found this letter, or she probably, knowing my mom, she's had this letter for many, many years and knew exactly where it was, but she had this letter and decided to read it to our entire family, my family of origin, uh, during a holiday gathering. So she reads this letter. It's this wonderful letter. My grandfather, uh, kind of writing back into, uh, or to my grandmother back uh, here home stateside, my grandfather was clearly lonely, and he was terribly discouraged with the diplomatic realities of post-war Hung uh, communist Hungary. And he expresses this throughout the letter. But the line that I most loved in this letter says this. Just received two letters from you, Barbie. Barbie was my grandmother. Barbara was her name, but she always went by Grandma Barbie. So my grandfather says, just received two letters from you, Barbie, so I feel much better. In fact, I think I will live a while now. 
you guys can go, oh, because that's what that actually demands in that moment. So the question you ask yourself is, did the letters that my grandfather received from my grandmother literally mean that he was going to live longer, that his life was going to be extended? Now, of course not. We all read it that way. We know that that's not the truth. We read this as hyperbole, right? Knowing the depth of connection and love that he shared with my grandmother as the sustaining force in his life while he's deployed. I can remember hearing that line in that moment and thinking to myself, what do I need to do as a married man to create this type of love, this type of connection, this type of devotion in my marriage with grace? This, of course, being a point of application for me, even though this letter was never sent to my mailbox. I mean, clearly this letter was not written to me, Clearly, it was penned in a different time, in a different era, addressing a very unique situation, but its words helped me to better understand my family, and its message still spoke powerfully into my practice of love. In the same way, I think we need to read the letters in Revelation, seven messages speaking to our distant family and their very specific situations, but still holding practical truth for us today, both on a personal and a corporate level. So as we spend some time studying these letters over the course of the next few Sundays, I think it's helpful to know they're penned to a certain specific people in a specific time, but they hold deep, deep truth for us. And that is what our goal is in this series. Now, each of the letters shares a structure, and I think this structure can be really, really helpful for us to understand. Uh, And the structure kind of has this similar set of features into all of these seven letters, all right? You can write this down if it's helpful. Uh, Otherwise, just know that there's about five to six different features that each of these letters have. The first one is Each of the letters always references the city or the church, the destination of the letter. The second is there is always a powerful description of Christ, okay? This powerful description of Christ, primarily reminding the recipients of his lordship. And this is exactly what Joseph talked about last week, right? And so the letter starts, to these people, let me remind you who Jesus is, From there, there is some sort of uh, commendation, like in an identification of how the church was embodying the call that was given to them. Kind of a, hey, you have done really well in this. But then, and usually central to the letter, there's a condemnation or a pointing out of a place of significant failure somewhere in the church. And lastly, the letter will contain a warning of what could happen if that which is broken is not fixed, and then a challenge to the church to repent and to live in to who they were called to be. And each of the letters kind of shares this structure. It's common throughout. Now, there is a little deviation, and we'll talk about some of those deviations as we get into these specific letters, but I think that helps give us uh, a, a bit of a framework for our work of interpretation through these letters, all right? So, That's the background. That's kind of the broad view. Let's look at this first letter. 
the letter to the church in Ephesus chapter 2, 1 through 7. Now, Ephesus at this point was the center of finance and really kind of the de facto capital of the Roman Empire in Asia Minor. The city was roughly the same size as our city, about 250,000 people. Set on the Mediterranean, it was built around idol worship, primarily with the Temple of Diana as the crown jewel of the city. Temple of Diana, of course, being one of the seven wonders of the world. The church in Ephesus is established during Paul's third missionary journey, somewhere around A.D. 50. He stays in Ephesus for three full years, okay? The longest that he stayed anywhere during his journeys, he stays in Ephesus for three full years. And due to Paul's presence, kind of sustaining presence in this city, and because it's this major metropolitan center, the church in the city expands very, very quickly with very fervent worship. As Paul leaves, Timothy takes over for the primary leader or or as the primary leader for a few years, and then John in AD 65 becomes the leader until he's imprisoned in Patmos 60 miles away. John writes Revelation in AD 90, so at this point, the church in Ephesus was likely the largest and most influential in the geographical area, okay? So the letter begins with a reference in the description of Jesus. Here we are in chapters 1 and 2. It says, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. This very letter contains the words of him who holds seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven Lampstands. This imagery goes directly back to chapter 1, and it's this very initial part of the letter that reminds the recipients of the sovereignty and present activity of Jesus Christ. This serves as a reminder to those receiving that the Lord is not only the supreme, supreme enough to hold stars in His hand, but is currently walking among, present with, and active in the seven churches. This depiction, like I said, is taken directly from chapter 1, and it again affirms the central theme of the entire book of Revelation, that Jesus Christ is Lord. The vision John records leaves no doubt about who is in control and who is to be worshipped. And each letter, like I said, starts this way because it's the central message to the entire recorded vision. Verses 2 through 4 continues, says this, I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. So the letter now shifts to the commendation of the church. It identifies its toil, its perseverance for the sake of the gospel. In a city known for its idolatry, the church in Ephesus continued to pursue correct doctrine. They diligently tested false teachers and orthodoxy, which he actually comes back to in verse 6 in mentioning the Nicolaitans, who were this small kind of heretical sect at the time. But the letter identifies and praises them for not growing weary, even in the midst of hardship. 
Now, John in this moment is doing some really pastoral work in these four verses. As C. West Daniels asserts, by refocusing these communities on powerful images connected to the vision of Jesus in Revelation 1 and drawing out their strengths, John is able to help reorient these communities around light and life that is already present. These early verses are important to remind the church in Ephesus who they serve and who they were. But the letter continues with a harsh critique in verses 5 and 6. It says this, Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love that you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now, the word forsaken in this context, that's kind of the key word here. The word forsaken in this context means to leave behind or to abandon, and it carries with this kind of this notion of like a deliberate act. Somebody is consciously making this decision. Even though the church had expanded and kept correct doctrine and persevered through hardship, seemingly doing all of the things that a church community should do, they had left their first love. The very thing, Jesus Christ as Lord, that was supposed to be central was abandoned in their lives. And because of their standing, because of this abandonment, they were on the verge of their light to the broken world around being snuffed out. Church and perseverance and correct doctrine are all important, but Jesus and their love of Him is truly the only thing that mattered. Greg Boyd says, our central job is not to solve the world's problems. Our job is to draw our entire life from Christ and manifest that life to others. Nothing could be simpler and nothing could be more challenging. It's simple because there is really only one thing we need to concern ourselves with, challenging because that one thing requires us to give ourselves wholly to Him. Now, like I said, this word forsaken, it's the kind of the key word in verses 5 through 6, and I think it's interesting in this verse because losing something is far different than leaving something. Leaving is a conscious decision, while losing is an accident or an oversight. I can remember, uh, this is probably eight years ago or so, maybe even longer, when Grace first told me that she had lost her wedding ring. She thought she'd taken it off before uh, a workout and put it in her purse, but then it was nowhere to be found. And for months, we looked around our house, we looked in all of the weird drawers, we took apart the couch cushions, we looked under the seats of the cars, we asked our friends to keep their eyes open, we asked our boys to always be on the lookout for mommy's wedding ring. But the ring was lost. Grace mourned the loss, constantly hoping it would turn up, beating herself up 
for losing something so precious. And after a year or so, we replaced the ring, but it could never fully take the place of the first as it didn't hold the same meaning, didn't hold the same sentimentality for her. And so Grace held out hope that it would someday be found. And about two years after it had been lost, Grace received a text from her mom while she was at school one day with a picture of the wedding ring. She was overjoyed. Apparently during a session of deep cleaning in a downstairs toy bin, my mother-in-law saw a small little felt bag that had come as part of a toy bow and arrow kit that we had purchased for our boys. Actually, they had purchased for our boys. And she opened it and a bunch of fake jewelry cascaded out of this bag and then one real wedding ring. Now we have worked to piece the story together as much as we can. And as much as we understand, the ring was taken off at my in-law's house right before a workout. My in-laws were watching our young boys at the time, and apparently this shiny object was too good to pass up as they played one of their favorite games, Pirates and Treasures. <laughs> to this day, the boys have no recollection of taking the ring out of the dish on the counter during their game. To this day, I think there might be more to the story. <laughs> now, had she just left her ring, determining it was no longer important, or that it was of no use, then that text that she received from her mother-in-law, or from her mother, would not have mattered, right? Had she deliberately left it behind, she could have at any moment returned to retrieve it. There's a difference in losing something and leaving something. The church in Ephesus strikes me as one that had gotten caught up in the surrounding culture, that they had worked to be what they thought they should be, but had forgotten their reason why, almost as if they were just simply going through the motions at this point. Now, the church hadn't completely lost Jesus since it's obvious that they were still doing good in the city. Rather, the people of the church had taken him for granted for so long that they had abandoned the very Lord they serve. The letter finishes with a challenge and an encouragement, saying this, Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit has to say to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. The promise that Ephesus is giving is that whoever is willing to listen, whoever is willing to repent, to turn back to their first love, those will be the people that will be victorious and the ones who experience all that God has for them in this life and the next. So those are your first seven verses. But what does it mean for us? What does this mean for us in the here and now? And I think there's a couple of things. We could discuss the model the Ephesians have set about perseverance or hard work. We could study their tenacity in rooting out false teaching, holding on to good, strong doctrine. But I think the most important point of application that could come from this letter is this idea of leaving one's first love. 
for us to evaluate as a church and as individuals, has our first love been replaced by something? In fact, I would maybe argue that this might be the exact question most needing an answer in our cultural moment. There is no doubt that the church and its people right now are in a time of great adversity. You could point to political division or the fracturing of denominationalism or systematic societal issues or climate change or COVID or fill in the blank with whatever you deem is the most pressing issue, the issue of greatest concern. But all of these things simply intensify and exacerbate the real issue that I think many of us are struggling with, the fact that maybe we have left our first love. Now, while I do think it's a choice or maybe a series of choices that are made, I don't necessarily think it's malicious. Rather, I think it's a reality. This leaving is a reality of being seduced by the mechanics of empire, the thrill of consumerism, the constant reaching for control and influence. I've heard a number of stories of people struggling with their faith in the last five years, many to the point of completely leaving it behind. Now, hear me when I say this. It is okay to struggle with your faith. It is okay to doubt and to have questions. But at some point, I do think you have to ask yourself, what has taken the place of my first love? Maybe it's the religiosity that you've tried to uphold, or it's the constant pressure you've put on yourself to do the work of the gospel, or it's your pursuit of Christian activities or your search for the perfect Christian relationship. Maybe it is the weight of the social issues, the weight that you feel that you need to be an agent of change. Maybe it's your pursuit of correct theology or inversely, your journey of deconstruction. And none of these things are bad things, right? But none of them should be our first love, for they are not the resurrected Lord, the one who we call King. I can speak from experience that it's easy to leave something, but that does not necessarily mean you need to give up on it altogether. Our cultural moment is one that easily discards anything that's not of immediate use or pleasure. It's one that often tosses out the old ways as antiquated without consideration to their veracity. It's a time that values individualism and freedom and choice so much so that true Christian discipleship and orthopraxy is disregarded as nonsensical in our modern age. Now, certainly... Christianity has been complicit in horrific historical events, and of course, individual Christians have inflicted pain and hurt, and yes, the church needs to adapt and grow in its love and acceptance, but these things are not Jesus. For as we've learned in chapter 1, Jesus is the Alpha and Omega, the Lord over all creation. This can still be the object of our love even in a time of great complexity. 
For many of us, we have at some time been close with God, but have now lost the motivation to continue our pursuit amidst the noise and everything else that competes for our time and attention. A.W. Tozer speaks to this idea when he says, to have found God and still pursue Him is the soul's paradox of love. To have found God and still pursue Him is the soul's paradox of love. You see, as much as it's found once, it needs to be found every single day. To the Ephesians, the call is to return to the fervency with which they first knew God. Verse 5 says, do the things you did at first. I think this could be a helpful call for us as well. To start back at the basics. To come to God like a child with deep trust and wonder. Instead of talking about and working for Jesus... Maybe talk to and work with Jesus. Maybe it's just a function of enjoying a Sabbath, taking some time to pray, pursuing conversations with others, desiring the same thing. For those of us who have felt either in part or all together that we have left our first love, the good news is we can always return. We can always come back. Not surprisingly, the book of James is one of my favorite books. Chapter 4, 7 through 8 has always been a verse that I've orbited around in my life. It says this, Submit yourselves then to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Now, I like this verse and verses like these because it gives me a list of things to do. But why I need this verse is because the idea of drawing near. This call to actively hold on to my first love. I can't rely on an experience that I had 22 years ago to sustain my relationship and love of Jesus. I have found, honestly, that it doesn't really matter if I'm a part of a church or feeding the poor or working to purify my heart if I'm not actually willing to draw near to God, if I'm not willing to love the very Lord that I claim to follow. And so new come. The letter to the church in Ephesus can and should be a poignant reminder to us A reminder that there is so much good in this place. Vulnerability and humility and kindness and generosity and love and sacrifice and acceptance. But if we can learn one thing from the church, it's the need for us to return and to grip tightly to our love of Jesus. For this is the only thing that can sustain us, and it's the only thing that will truly change the world. Amen. Let's take a, a moment here, and I just want to pray.
over us as a community, and then I will close us <clears throat> with a few updates and a benediction. Lord, we want, first and foremost, to exalt you for being a God that always allows us to return. For those of us in this space that feel like maybe we have left, maybe we have been distanced, help us to know what it means to come back, to regain our first love, to stake our entire being on that. Lord, we trust that you will speak to us powerfully through the book of Revelation. We ask that we would be a humble people to hear and accept the words that you would have for us. Convict our hearts, Lord. Help us to grow. Help us to move closer to you. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.